day in and day out, we would make million dollar decisions um, based off data, but a lot of instinct and, and a lot of, you know, passion and conviction. And I think for me, just the entire experience of big ass fans was, was wild. I should not have been given as much responsibility as I, as I was. I tell people I was so fortunate because I got the experience of an entrepreneur without the risk of an entrepreneur. Awesome Inc. presents the Kentucky Entrepreneur Hall of Fame, a show that highlights how people throughout the Commonwealth of Kentucky pursue their definition of awesome through entrepreneurship, technology, and innovation. Alex Reed co-founded cleaning startup Truman's following more than a decade at Fan & Light Manufacturer in Lexington, Big Ass Fans, where he led an expansive marketing division that helped the company grow from $30 million in annual sales to more than $250 million. Alex used innovative approaches to grow the company's customer base nearly 40% annually. And at the same time, customer loyalty became so strong that repeat business accounted for half of all orders. He oversaw its expansion beyond a business-to-business -business strategy to business-to-consumer with the 2012 debut of Haiku, the first biggest fans for homes. And after the exit sale in 2017 for $500 million, Alex co-founded Truman's with the biggest fan chief operating officer, John Bostick. The pair aims to disrupt the cleaning industry with the belief that cleaning should be green, simple, convenient, and costless. Hey guys, thanks for checking in today. In-house, we have Alex Reed from Truman's, and he has been making a ton of headway with this company. If I can encourage you guys to do one thing, go after this episode, check out their content on LinkedIn and Instagram. They have a ton of cool animations, personal posts from customers. It's really fun, and it does not disappoint. So Alex, thanks so much for coming in today, man. We're excited to have you on this episode, and I must say, you are looking good in that button-down. <laughs> sitting across from me in a conference room. Yeah, and no, I appreciate the opportunity to, to come in and talk about Truman's and tell, tell you my story. You know, I think um, everybody's got an interesting story. Um, it's never straightforward, as it seems. And, and you know, with, with Truman's, um, it certainly was an opportunity that uh, I never would have anticipated coming up in my career. Um, but, you know, when you trace back steps that led me here, it makes perfect sense. So um, really looking forward to, to sharing more about it. Well, man, I am pumped to hear your story and I really appreciate what you just said. So let's go ahead and get started and dive on in with this. Why don't you tell me the Alex Reed story? What does your background look like? How did you start Truman's? How'd you end up in Kentucky? <laughs> How'd you end up in Kentucky? That's great. And what, what did it take for you to get involved in this thing that we call entrepreneurship? What is your background there? Yeah. So I was a uh, Louisville born and raised and, you know, I did every odd job imaginable. I umpired baseball games. I bagged groceries. I mowed yards. Um, I, you know, I did whatever it was. And, and, you know, I think one of those values that's instilled upon you in an early part of your life is work ethic. Um, so it doesn't really matter what you're doing as long as you're doing something. And so if I wasn't in sports as a kid, I was working and that was just the way it was. Um, and I carried that through uh, my career. I've always had a very strong desire to produce, uh, to produce results. Um, and so, you know, when I started uh, at school at the University of Kentucky, 
Um, I was interested in getting into marketing, but that's obviously very broad brush, you know, and, and, and in my mind, it was more of the ad agency. Okay. You know, we're coming up with TV commercials, that, that very kind of faint idea of what marketing actually is. Um, around my junior year, I started getting more serious about what you would call the client side, which is, you know, working for a company um, and developing brand positioning, go to market strategies. Uh, I actually found out about a company called Big Ass Fans, which everybody in Kentucky knows about yes, now, yes, but at the time do. was not very well known. I had never heard of it. Um, I only got connected to them through a professor who recommended me for an internship. Um, when I walked into the company, this was in 2008 for an interview, I thought, oh my gosh, this place is amazing. It's got this Facebook vibe to it. Um, you know, it kind of had this, this very startup culture. Uh, it was very attractive. And so I started working there as an undergrad, um, and got way more experience than I should have. You know, a lot of people know his story, but uh, the founder and CEO of Big Ass Fans, Carrie Smith, was an extremely entrepreneurial individual, um, had no fear, you know, no risk aversion. Um, and that's really what you look for in entrepreneurs. Uh, and he empowered me in that same way. You know, he gave me responsibility well beyond my years as an intern. Um, you know, I'm running campaigns worth tens of thousands of dollars and, and scared to death that I'm going to make a mistake. Um, but really what he taught me, you know, among other things like being disruptive, um, how to differentiate yourself in the marketplace um, was to really be fearless. And, you know, that behavior, I think, really helped open me up as a marketer, as a business professional. You know, if you do things the safe way, if you do it the way everybody else has done it for years and you follow a template, uh, your success is going to be limited to what, you know, others have done. And I think entrepreneurs, entrepreneurs, people that, you know, start something new and grow companies have to be willing to, to, you know, get outside of the box. And, and so I learned that at big ass fans at a very early age. Um, you know, one of the biggest responsibilities I had during my 10 year career there was launching our consumer brand. You know, I have no consumer marketing experience at that point. My experience is only with B2B and only with this company. And here we are launching this high-end premium residential ceiling fan. We grew that business to $60 million in three years. Wow. And I think we did it because we didn't know what we were doing. Okay. You know, we were breaking all of the rules. We were uh, not selling it through retail. We were not selling a million different designs and colors and sizes and shapes. You know, we keyed in on one key design, one feature set, um, and we hammered our story in a way that was very different. You know, when you look at our advertising, for example, they were page long ads in the New York Times that spelled out every detail of what was different about this product and how your life was going to be different when you owned it. And that was just very untraditional. Um, and I think it caught people off guard uh, and it really kind of gave us the rocket fuel we needed to grow that business. The other thing that was interesting, you know, I mentioned not selling through retail. Not only were we direct, but about 60 to 70 percent of our sales were over the phone. Somebody's calling in to order a ceiling fan. I mean, it's unheard of even today, exactly. but, but what we tapped into was this was a market that hadn't seen innovation. This was a market that wasn't looked at as a design feature in the home. We were able to recast it as, you know, you've got a $5,000 sofa and a hundred dollar ceiling fan hanging over your living room. It yeah, doesn't make any sense. It doesn't. And so we told that story in a way that got people to think differently about ceiling fans. Um, and then we found out that, hey, it's not an unloved category. It, it is an emotional category. There was just no option. So if we allow people to communicate with us, develop relationships, we can find out what they're looking for. 
you know, what size, what color, what features, what do you care about? And out of that, you can grow a business. So we have an idea. We connect with our consumers directly. We take it to market in a disruptive way. And then we continue to grow the business from there. And I think that was a model that stuck with me. You know, we didn't know what we were doing, but we followed certain, I think, business guidelines that really helped us um, understand how we could be successful. If you fast forward to Truman's, and I'll, I'll talk about how I left big ass fans, but the, the story is the exact same. You know, we'll get into the unloved category, but I think there are a lot of industries that are like that, that there aren't really boring products. They're just boring brands. Absolutely. And, and so that was something that I learned at, at a very early age at Big Ass Fans. <laughs> you just said so much wonderful stuff. Uh, yeah, real quickly, I want to go back to one of the first things you said. You used to umpire baseball games, right? <laughs> Where did you do that? Because I'm from Louisville and because of our age difference, you could have actually been my umpire. Uh, Middletown. Okay. Actually. Yeah. I actually mostly played at Linden and Skyview. So I played at Linden though. Oh really? But I never umpired there. Were you ever a part of the Linden Lightning? Was that the traveling team? Yeah. I did a traveling team okay. one summer, but yeah, it wasn't the Lightning. I can't even remember nice. what we were called. I'm showing my age now. <laughs> <laughs> Man, I mess with you. Hey, going back, uh, you touched on a few things I wanted to address. Number one, you said you only had experience with B2B marketing at Big S, which is interesting because that's something you don't do nearly as much of today. A lot of it is B2C. And then number two, your first experience in marketing, you didn't really know anything about it. Uh, but that was something that you figured out along the way. And I love that because that's one of the best parts of startups is you just break all the freaking rules as yeah. you go. I mean, the, the, the fundamentals are the same. And I think a lot of people assume that marketing to businesses is a lot different than marketing to consumers. But the number one job of a marketer is to, to get noticed. I mean, at the end of the day, yes, this is a company buying versus an individual. But if you can't cut through the tremendous amount of noise that exists in the marketplace, you're not going to be successful. Um, big ass fans, obviously, with a stroke of genius, you know, named the company what it did. And that, that was a big leg up. But with that, you know, came this almost requirement to have interesting marketing. You can't have a name like Big Ass Fans and then have tradition. Yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah, it, it would never go anywhere. So, you know, I think we broke the mold for an industrial durable good um, by having this license to be a little bit more tongue in cheek, playful. Um, but not only that, go direct. I don't know if, if, if you know that, but it's very foreign in B2B, especially in the industrial space, to not sell through manufacturers, reps, mm -hmm. distributors, you know, the, the, the catalog, um, you know, Granger, for example, um, and big ass fans went direct. They had company employees walking the halls, you know, walking the factory floor, getting to know these individuals. And that was equally genius as naming the company big ass fans yeah. and taking on this brand persona because, you know, it's it's one thing to have a great product, but when you actually know your customers, you can iterate beyond your initial product and serve their needs in a number of different ways. So they grew through offering services like installation, offering lighting product, offering directional fans, small fans, stuff they never would have learned had they been selling through distribution because you close that feedback loop. Um, so you also have the opportunity to really take care of your customers when you F something up and you're going to F something up. <laughs> every business does it. Exactly. Every it's category. Fun. You have to own that. You have to understand the mistake and, and fix it going forward, but you have to own it with the customer. And I think that accountability also helps businesses because when you don't see those mistakes, because you're not the one with the relationship, then there's no opportunity to 
um, develop that relationship further. And mistakes, really, you don't want to make them, but they they offer you an opportunity to even strengthen your relationship with those customers. So the company made a lot of very important decisions early on that I think set it on the right foothold. Um, and, and when you look at what we're doing with Truman's, we're trying to follow those same steps, even though it's business to consumer, because I think good business is good business. No, I love that. And even hearing what you said, you're you're dropping truth bombs left and right. <laughs> and one of the coolest things is how the manufacturing industry, people were always buying stuff, you know, via catalogs or phone calls. And there was there was always that sense of a middleman. But when you guys came you guys came in, essentially you got rid of that middleman and sold directly. And hearing that, I think, why did no one else do that sooner? So to me, that's super cool to hear. Yeah, I think direct-to-consumer is becoming trendier, um, and I think people are starting to see the advantages, you know, economic advantages, brand advantages. But, you know, when Big Ass Fans was founded in the late 90s, there was no such thing as, as direct-to-consumer. Even in 2012, when we launched the consumer brand, it was still a relatively new concept. You know, e-commerce has only really come along in the last decade, which is crazy to think about. Because it controls um, so much I, of our I lives. I know, because now it's everything, but... Um, before that, you know, when you think about consumer ceiling fans, there was not even an option to buy it online because how are you going to do that? Yeah. So um, I think we really were at the bleeding edge. But what you're going to see in the next 10 years is a continued trend in that direction, because I think there are all these values um, and, and it's tough for big companies, right? Because they're stuck. I mean, their customer is the retailer. So to go direct now, they have to compete with their biggest customer. And it creates a lot of friction. So I think that's why you're seeing companies, whether it's mattresses or eyewear or footwear, that are going direct and, and really putting a lot of pressure on the big companies because it's it's tough for them to just pick up one day and say, okay, well, we're going to do that too. I'm pretty excited to see that trend continuing to, to develop. Hey, real quickly, I want to pivot and touch upon Kerry Smith. So Kerry Smith is an inductee of the 2016 class for the Kentucky Entrepreneur Hall of Fame. And I know that we love his work and everything he's done around Kentucky. Alex, as we continue talking about Truman's, what's one thing when you look back at your time at Big S, you recognize that Kerry was a key factor in helping you get to where you are today? Yeah, Kerry is one of the most interesting individuals I've ever met. Um, he was never satisfied and he never let you get comfortable. And I think that's, you know, when you're successful, um, complacency is something you, you really have to be wary of. I think, you know, people become comfortable with routine. They become comfortable with what's working. And again, he had that entrepreneurial mindset that I think is tough to define, um, in terms of what quality, what character attribute is it? He just had this strong desire to continually innovate and continually be different, whether it was the, the marketing, whether it was the product development whether it was go-to-market strategies, international expansion. He had this desire to change the way we did things and to um, really go after markets. And, and I don't know that that's something that can be taught, um, but certainly I, I, I feel like I benefited from, um, you know, witnessing and participating in that, that mode of thinking. And so, you know, Kerry, like I said, is he's one of the more interesting individuals because of the way he thinks about things. He wasn't an engineer by mm -hmm. trade. And I think a lot of people assume, oh, the person who started Big Ass Fans Has must have be been this huge, mad scientist. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, He's a business person and he understands the way businesses work and don't work. And I think he attacks them very aggressively. Again, it, you know, in addition to the way he thinks, he's not a risk averse individual. He put it all on the line. You know, he never raised outside capital. He maxed out his credit cards. He sold his house. 
Um, so he's somebody who who put everything at stake for big ass fans to be successful. Now, when when he had his exit in 2017, you know he had a big exit, but typically um, at that point when founders leave their business, you know they're heavily diluted or you know it, it's not their company anymore. And, and and so he's somebody I think that's almost a throwback to a bygone era where he bootstrapped the entire thing and just you know ton of respect and admiration for for somebody to be willing to do that. That's that's a tough tough thing to do nowadays, especially when speed to market is so important, you know, to see that consistent growth that he had over 20 years is just, you know, it's nothing short of impressive. So, I I mean, I think he, Kerry being in the hall of fame is is a no brainer. Alex, it's evident that you admire him and that he's had a lot to do with where you are today, (laughs) but however, we're here for you today. So let's talk (laughs) about Truman's brother. I know what you do. Maybe some of our listeners do as well. But what exactly is Truman's? What problem are you guys solving? How did your product come to life? And man, when I say these P words, I get really nervous that my plosives are going to blow people away. Sorry, that was lame. Uh, But one of the cool things about your story is that you saw a problem that wasn't being addressed and presented a creative solution. Tell me about that. Yeah, so so Truman's is a new cleaning brand, new cleaning company, and I can imagine the face of listeners when you say it, like, "Oh gosh, a cleaning company." I mean, what the you heck? went from ceiling fans to cleaning products, like just a, a glutton for boring, you must like the boring products. Accessories. I do love boring products um, because I think there is no such thing as boring products, but companies allow them to become boring over time. Um, you know, Big Ass Fans was acquired at the end of 2017. Um, I got to know our COO who came on to really help facilitate that deal very well during the acquisition process. Um, and he and I had talked about doing something more entrepreneurial because, you know, when, when we exited big ass fans, it was a much larger company than when I started, I had a strong desire to get back to, you know, the earlier days, the younger company, um, smaller, more agile. And over time, you know, companies have to evolve and, and develop processes and, you know, things that big companies have to do. So, you know, we looked at a number of opportunities and we knew we wanted a business that could go direct. We knew we wanted a business that could have a product that was differentiated. Um, So we studied the landscape of a lot of different product categories. When we got to cleaning, we realized that it had been passed over in this wave of direct-to-consumer disruption because it's not very well set up for e-commerce. You think about shipping a product that is primarily water, um, on a one-off basis, it's economically and environmentally irresponsible. Yeah. Um, so 99% of cleaning products are still bought at retail. Well, concentrates have existed for a long time. That's where you, you know, shrink down the main ingredients mm-hmm. and, and mix it with water. The problem with concentrates are the design is very poor. Okay. People aren't comfortable mixing them themselves. They're afraid they're going to dilute it incorrectly. They're yeah. afraid they're, you know, or, touching or they it. Mix well. Exactly. Um, but when we looked at the commercial space, they're commonplace. So restaurants, hotels, because you can't have a million ready-to-use bottles sitting on your supply shelf. It's not, again, economically practical to have single-use bottles um, shipped to you and then stored in these storage facilities. So, you know, they just package the main ingredients. There's actually a lot of innovation on the commercial side of cleaning, but because of the way it's taken to market on the consumer side, it hasn't kept up, which is interesting, right? I mean, you would think innovation would happen first on the consumer side. Yeah. Um, but this is once again, the, the big companies have no motivation to go compete with their biggest customer and sell concentrates direct. You can't sell concentrates well on a shelf. 
because you're now selling somebody an empty bottle, which mm-hmm. is a little bit confusing. Then why would I buy this? Yeah. The packaging is smaller than than the ready to use bottle next to it. And so you're saying I'm getting less value. So there, there are a ton of reasons For why sure. it doesn't work well at retail and a ton of reasons why the big brands don't want to take it direct. So we saw an opportunity to take a concept that existed commercially, but didn't exist in the consumer world, um, which is a refill cartridge which allows you to dispense the key ingredients for a glass cleaner, kitchen cleaner, bathroom floor cleaner into water that you supply at home. So what we do as a business is we ship you four empty reusable bottles and four concentrate cartridges, four cleaners for the entire home. You add the water to a fill line, you pop in the cartridge, twist the sprayer, you're ready ready to to go. Yeah, that's great. And so I think that from a technology perspective is disruptive. But I think the other thing that we felt really strongly about was that the category retail tends to drive trends. And what, what brands tend to do when the category matures is find ways to increase their share. That may be adding another specialized cleaner. It may be adding new fragrances. They try to find ways to put more product on that shelf. And so what drove that was, or what drove a lot of complexity in the industry was, was simply the way it was brought to market, where all of these companies are competing over shelf space. Um, so what we saw was an opportunity to really minimalize the product offerings. You know, as we studied this industry, what I really learned was if you have non-toxic and healthy ingredients, you don't have to have 40 different specialized cleaners. You should be able to use one on your granite, on your marble, on your stainless steel. I didn't know any of this before I really got into it. And so we saw an opportunity not only to deliver a product that was of superior economic and environmental value, but dramatically simplified what you needed as a customer, you know, cut through all the clutter. Uh, You know, you can walk down the retail aisle and you'll see dozens and dozens of different bottles and wipes and, and various things. And, you know, at the end of the day, you don't need that much. So, you know, we saw this industry as ripe for disruption, you know, from a technology, from a go-to-market and from a branding. I'd say that that third thing is it's really boring industry. Um, you know, it's dominated by hundred year old brands. They really haven't changed a whole lot. They're iconic. Everybody knows the, you know, Windex and Lysol and Clorox and Mr. Clean. All these brands have been around forever. Um, they're boring. I mean, they don't have any personality. You can't talk to the companies. There's no way to get in touch with them because, again, their customer is the retailer, not you as an individual. Um, and so we, we just saw a, a tremendous opportunity to come in there and rethink the entire category. Um, and so in February, we launched Truman's and, you know, it has been just so well adopted by the market. I mean, the, the feedback, you always wonder when you're getting ready to launch something, is this really going to work? Are people yeah. going to love it? And, and people love it. it. It's been awesome. Man, I'm getting so excited to hear you talk. And I just keep having all these one-off thoughts. Uh, this might this might sound super lame, but I remember as I was growing up, my mom was literally the biggest fan of buying concentrated juices for our family road trips. And I love that that's your model. Everything you've said about going to a store is true. I was actually at Kroger last night with my roommate's And walking down the aisle, you see 10 of the same thing right next to one another. So I think the subscription-based model is great. The problem that, you know, a a Procter & Gamble or a Unilever or or any of these big um, conglomerates that sell cleaning products have with with concentrates is I now have to offer you a product that's going to do the same thing and hold price. Because I'm not going to go to my, you know, 
my quarterly review and have um, have to explain why I cut my price in half. And I can't sell you as, as a customer this product for the same price as I was selling before if you're getting to reuse the bottle and reuse the, you know, the water uh, over and over again. So they're, they're really stuck um, in, in what they can do. And I think you know, it's not just the cleaning industry. You're, you're right. I mean, you go down any aisle and what happens is in a mature category, they, they try to um, add SKUs, add options um, to, to get more market share. And, you know, we're, we're coming at it from a very contrarian perspective and saying, we actually want to sell you less. You don't need that. You know, one of the, the companies I think that did that very well in the beginning um, was Dollar Shave Club. Mm-hmm. Um, because you look at the razor industry and it, it, it's laughable and they poked fun at it because the innovation was they would add blades and it yeah, got to the point where you had some, like, some joint balls to the same product <laughs> yeah. over and over. It's like, come on, it's, it's a sharp piece of metal that's cutting hair off your face. And, and they, they sort of poked fun at their own industry and said, you don't need all that. You know, I, I think we're doing a little bit of the same. I, I, I think the complexity doesn't benefit the customer. Again, it doesn't benefit the environment. The only one that wins are the bigger cleaning brands. So, you know, we we firmly believe that this market just got left behind because, um, you know, concentrates don't play well at the retail shelf. Hearing you mention Dollar Shave Club, was that something that you've used as a customer and then wondered if that would work for your company? Yeah, we, you know, we studied a lot of direct brands and and what we thought made them successful and i think it it runs a wide range what we liked about dollar shave club was their attitude i think um you know you don't have to take yourself too seriously oh no and certainly we didn't have big ass fans either um so what you see in a lot of truman's branding is our own personality coming out where we like to have fun with it you know we don't take ourselves too seriously we have a good product, but at the end of the day, I'm not going to sell you so hard on, on the innovation. Just you know, try it and see it for yourself and then decide if you like it. Um, we looked at other companies. You know, Another really strong direct-to-consumer brand is, is Glossier. And I don't know if you're familiar with them, but it's a mm-hmm. cosmetics brand. Okay. Um, so it's, it's uh, primarily targeting the female audience. But what they do really special is they've created this community um, where their customers are their marketing arm. You know, they interact with their customers so well. I think I read at one point that they get um, 10 direct messages on Instagram every minute. And oh, they wow. respond to everyone. That's awesome. Um, so they do a really good job. Again, with direct consumer, the expectation is that you are able to connect directly with your customers. So I think they execute that very well. But you can go across the landscape and see, see businesses that are doing it well today versus the traditional brands that um, are really holding on uh, because... I mean, there's a number of reasons you can roll it back, but think about if you're a product manager or a category manager at one of these big companies, if you're successful, you're only going to be in that job for two years. Why would you upset the apple cart and and do something that's going to cause you to either lose value or lose market share? Um, because if I were to, to go in, into one of these meetings and pitch this concentrate product, you know, it's going to get worse before it gets better. Absolutely. Kind of thing. Yeah. Yeah. So I get that. If I'm an individual that's in that job for two or three years, there's no motivation for me to do it. And, Just and so play, you play it safe and life is smooth sailing. Yeah. So, so it, it's tough for these big companies. I think even when they see it coming and we've talked to, you know, we get a lot of support, believe it or not from our competitors. Oh really? They want to see this change, but they understand why they can't do it. They have shareholders. Yeah. That makes sense. They don't want to disappoint the higher ups. Yeah. Yeah. That's cool to know. I wouldn't have thought of that initially. And this was actually what I was hinting at earlier. 
when you were with Big Ass, you said one of the most important things you learned, uh, yeah, you know, in regards to customers was telling your story well. You said most of your focus was B2B business. So what was your experience like going from B2B marketing and focusing it to B2C? Again, I think there are foundational elements to marketing. You know, you have to understand who your target audience is. You have to understand um, what their problem is, how they're addressing it today, why that, uh, why their current solution is insufficient. And then you really have to develop um, a brand position and a go-to-market strategy that I think allows you to, to gain attention, gain mind share, and ultimately meet that need. I mean, there are steps in the process and, and there are any number of ways a formula can go wrong. Um, but I think the approach, whether it's B2B or B2C is the same. And I think the number one thing, if you do anything right in that process, it should be differentiation. Um, you're never going to be, even if you, you understand the market, understand your audience, competitive landscape, product features, you know, all these things that matter. If you come out with a very stale approach, it's dead in the water. And so I think more attention needs to be paid to how are we standing out? Because there's a million options for everybody, whether you're a business or a customer. And I think in the business world, especially where um, price can drive a lot of decisions, you know, there's a little bit less emotion, then you need to be even more special to stand out. Um, at the end of the day, uh, having a good product is table stakes, right? If you don't have a good product, you're not going to go very far in business anyways, because, you know, word will catch up to you that yeah. your, your product's no good. Um, but that's not enough. And so, you know, I think people shouldn't, if this is more of an advice segment, people shouldn't overly concern themselves if their experience is, is biased towards B2B or B2C, because I think the principles hold true. You know, I think too often people assume B2B needs to be safe and, you know, played straight. Um, and, and in fact, it couldn't be more untrue. I mean, I think the, the, the onus on you to be differentiated in the business world is even stronger mm -hmm. because it is so competitive and it is so price driven and you need to elevate your brand to where people are asking for you by name. You know, it's it, it, no greater truth with big ass fans than in the architectural and design world where products often got specified um, based on a minimal feature set. And then the, the project would go to the lowest bidder, essentially. Big ass fans was able to hold spec. Um, and, and I think at the end of the day, a lot of that, you know, you would come up with features and reasons why, you know, it couldn't be spec'd out. Um, but a lot of times it was just because the the person running that project wanted a big ass fan yeah. on their project. Hey, I understand it's, that. It's all again, it's all humans making decisions, even if you're selling to a business. So yeah, that's um, sweet. So yeah, I mean, I think a lot of the skills translate well. And you know, I I was excited to have that consumer experience at Big Ass Fans when given the opportunity. Um, but I learned pretty quickly that what I had been working on in the business world um, translated very well. Alex, if you don't mind me asking. Can you tell me what your target audience is? Do you guys target smaller families or something like traveling cleaning companies? You know, do you have any niche groups that you try to sell to? Yeah, I, for one, we, we, we definitely don't want to be a niche brand. I think a lot of oh, companies okay. that have tried, um, you know, going with non-toxic and concentrate-based cleaning solutions have targeted a very environmentally conscious consumer. Okay. Um, we want the Windex user. We want the Clorox user. We want the person that, um, 
I won't say they don't give a shit about the environment, but they're not driving a Prius and putting solar panels on their roof. They might recycle every week, but that's about as far as it goes. We want that customer. And I think, you know, that's why environmental is part of our story, but it's not our lead. Gotcha. Um, Because we, we want this to have broad appeal because if you have a great environmentally beneficial product, but you only appeal to five percent of the market, then the, there's a limit oh, yeah. to what your you're impact missing a lot is. Of the market. Well, and not just missing a lot of market from a growth perspective, but even your impact on the environment is muted. And so, I think from a price perspective, from from a positioning, we wanted a very approachable brand. We wanted a very approachable price point because we want to go after the meat of the market. If you're making uh, cleaners with home ingredients like vinegar, mm-hmm. or you're using concentrates already, and and I tell people this literally when they interact with with our company we didn't make Truman's for you. Like I would love for you to try it and and be convinced that we're a better solution, but we didn't make it for you. We made it for the person buying a ready to use bottle on the shelf. You know, your parents, like you said, have a dozen bottles and they don't know which one to use on which surface. That's the customer that we want. Um, so, so we're going after, you know, I'd say the heart of the country and, and what we see so far, you know, we're only about five or six months in, so it's going to evolve over time, but, um, we're seeing a younger demographic. We're seeing a more male demographic, which is really cool. Um, and so you're seeing a lot of people that I think um, traditional cleaning brands might not go after. You know, you, you're going after a lot of mothers. When you look at the ads and who they show in, in TV campaigns, they're going after moms. And, you know, we want everybody, you know, whether you're a 22 year old, you know, living in your first apartment. Or, you know, you're, you're nearing retirement age and you've been cleaning with the same solution for, for 40 years. We want you to give Truman's a shot. So approachability was a key theme for us in, in everything that we developed. One thing you said earlier is that you're limiting what you sell. That makes me think how every New Year's people have, you know, the resolution to lose weight. But it's really easy to get overwhelmed when there's so much out there in terms of what to eat, what to wear. What body parts, you know, what you should focus on, you know, what Instagram bodybuilder you want to follow, all that stuff, you know. And again, here's kind of where I'm talking about one-offs. Oh, yeah, sorry. But when we get overwhelmed, we don't make changes. So I think it's pretty cool that your company knows it has a good product and that anyone can use it. Yeah, we have one product. It's a starter One. So we sell the four different cleaners, but if you've never um, bought from us before, you can only buy one thing. And that's a starter kit. And after the fact, if, if you like three out of the four, that's fine. You can continue with those three. Um, but but we wanted to really simplify the buying experience. And I, I think there's something almost refreshing to our overloaded brains when somebody makes it simple for you and you don't have to configure and things like that. And and so we feel like the the contrast between the retail shelf experience and then buying from us is very strong. Um, and also from a business perspective, you know, we're, we're introducing you to all four products at once, which is great for us too. It's yeah. great for you because it's simple and you get to try them all at a very affordable, you know, price. Um, but it's great for us because we're introducing you to all four, whereas the traditional cleaning brands sell you one and then hope that you'll try their other ones. Yeah. You know, yeah, you, kind of the domino effect. Yeah. And and so we're starting off where you're trying all four. And if you want to pull back, you can, but you're going to try all four to start. And so, you know, I think businesses evolve. We'll, we'll, we certainly have aspirations of um, providing cleaners for, for other things than just surfaces. Um, but for 
you know, the beginning of the company, we really wanted that simplicity to be a big part of our message. And we feel like it resonates. Uh, you know, I think it's, it's, again, it's refreshing to use the word. Um, and I think we saw that with other D2C disruptors. You know, Casper is a good one that we haven't talked about. Sure, yeah. And mattresses. They didn't invent uh, mattress in a box. They weren't the first company. <laughs> no, no, they weren't. But they were very simple in their approach. And I think people who have gone to the mattress store and seen the overwhelming number of choices oh, yeah. really appreciated. Oh, this is affordable. It's one mattress for everybody. I can return it if I don't like it. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Okay, there's no yeah. risk. So I think the you know businesses get more complicated over time and, and it's really, it, it gets more challenging, but it's really important for brands to think about how they can um, simplify the experience for their customer, whether it's an existing customer on an ongoing basis or it's a new customer. Um, this is a relatively, I'd say, new new challenge for us just as a society and as a culture where we're overloaded with information all the time. And so it's nice when a brand makes it easy for you. Oh, yeah, absolutely. 100%. I agree with that. And I think that's one of the best things as a customer. You know, you're taking your money to someplace to get a service or good. And when that company makes it easy for me, I will continue to bring my business back. So, Alex, I want to transition to one of my favorite parts is when I just get to talk to you you know, across the table uh, and just be a human with you. So why don't you tell us what motivates you or, you know, what makes you tick or what helps you get out of bed every morning? Yeah, I think there are a, a couple of things. And, um, you know, number one is family. I think you want to, um, you know, not only be successful for your family, but you also want to um, create, create a better world, create better opportunities for them. You know, I would never want to go work for Philip Morris. I would never want to go work for McDonald's. You know, there are some great brands out there that I would never want to go work for because I would not be proud to go home and, and you know, share with my family how I was making a living doing that. Um, I was very proud of what we did at Big Ass Fans. They were great products. They kept people comfortable. They reduced energy costs. Um, with Truman's are, you know, obvious benefits. Um, and I think that's important for me. Um, secondarily, I would say... You only get one life, at least that's my belief. <laughs> you only get one career. Um, you should do something that that you can look back on, reflect on, and and, and not feel remorse. Um, I'm a strong believer in in the whole um, deathbed philosophy of, you know, what are you going to be thinking about? What are you going to be regretting that you did or didn't do? Mm -hmm. um, and so that's very motivating to me. And, and so in a morbid way, death is motivating because, you know, time goes quickly. You only get so many bites of the apple. So I'm, I'm an opportunist and, you know, big ass fans. I, I jumped all over that whenever given an opportunity. Truman's, I'm, I'm all over it. I think it's a huge opportunity. And, um, you know, those are two things, um, you know, that I think just keep me, grinding, working insane hours, but loving what I do. Um, I think everybody needs to find that motivation. Now, a third thing I think, which is a little bit more sinister is, is find somebody that doesn't believe in you or some bodies and use that as motivation. I don't yeah, think it like hurts that. to have haters out there. Yeah. I, I know what you mean, man. You gotta, you gotta block out the haters. <laughs> it gives you a little bit of an edge. And, and there were people that did not want me to start Truman's. Really? Yes. That said, you got lightning in a bottle once with big ass fans. Yeah, don't do it again. Yeah, Play it don't. safe. You know, I had opportunities, whether it was staying with big ass fans or, or, or going to other companies, um, to to you know not work for myself, um, and they would have been fine. You know, I, I probably would have done okay for myself. But um, 
again, that, that sort of feedback that you're not going to be successful again is motivating. And I think that's, that's a good thing. I don't think, um, I, I think doubt can propel people. And so try to find that, that person in your life that doubts you and use yeah, that as motivation. Absolutely. You've got to turn that frustration into fuel. Yeah. That sounds like what a good motivational coach would say. <laughs> what's, uh, what's one of the craziest things that has happened to you in the business world that honestly no one would expect to hear from you? I don't know, maybe something like that or something tragic that's part of your story. Do you have anything like that? The craziest thing with Truman's or just it can, in, it can be anything experience in general. Oh gosh. I've had so many crazy things happen to me. Um, you know, I've, I've been in Google's offices and, and Amazon's offices and Apple's offices and, you know, meeting so many interesting people. But honestly, the, the craziest was probably working with Carrie. You know, we talked a lot about Carrie Smith being an interesting individual. Um, you never knew what you were going to get day in and day out from him, uh, especially on Mondays where he had all weekend to think about it. And I don't mean crazy in a bad way, but I mean just unexpected. And, and I wouldn't say there was one specific incident, if that's what you're, you're looking for, that I can point to as, as the craziest thing I ever experienced. But, um, you know, day in and day out, we would make million-dollar decisions um, based off data, but a lot of instinct. And a lot of, you know, passion and conviction. And I think for me, just the entire experience of big ass fans was was wild. I should not have been given as much responsibility as I as I was. <laughs> and I, you know, <laughs> I love, you it. know, I, I, I tell people I was so fortunate because I got the experience of an entrepreneur without the risk of an entrepreneur. Man, honestly, that's how I feel working at Awesome Inc. a lot of the times. So again, I think I told you this before, but this is my first job out of school and it has been incredible to say the least, just to see the ways that we are able to help people. We help people chase after what they think is awesome. And again, we aren't necessarily taking the risks, but we definitely reap the benefits of watching people succeed. It's addicting. And it's also just fun to see people strive to be vibrant and to participate within the startup community, not only here in Lexington, but all across the state. I mean, I love that mission. I love the way you all operate because I think fostering that culture of innovation and entrepreneurship is not easy. There are a ton of reasons, a million reasons why you shouldn't start a business or why you shouldn't pursue things. And, um, you know, you can look at every stat and you can see that the, the rate of entrepreneurship is declining in America, which I, I think everybody would agree is not a good thing. You know, you want more um, individuals trying to change the status quo, trying to, to put pressure on big businesses. And um, so I love what you all do, but I think that was what was so unique about the experience at Big Ass Fans, because it wasn't just me. There were a lot of individuals that, that benefited from the culture that was created, which was a culture of risk-taking, culture of, of um, extending beyond your your capabilities or your experience at least um and 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 being allowed to fail you know that that gets romanticized sometimes and, mm -hmm. and i hate it because failure sucks and it's painful and i can think of a lot of mistakes that i made along the way um but being given that opportunity without you know being cut loose at your first sign of failure is, is so important um so again i i benefited from almost 10 years of entrepreneur 
entrepreneurial tutoring. Yeah, um, that's that, so sweet. You know, I'm a first time founder with Truman's, but it certainly doesn't feel that way because I did a lot of these things while I was at Big Ass. And Dance. you got to figure everything out while you were there. And Alex, speaking of failure, there's no better teacher. The more it hurts and stings, the more you're going to be determined to succeed. I think companies too. You know, I talked about companies uh, effing things up. Yeah. If you don't know that you f something up, or you're not getting that feedback, then you're not benefiting from that failure. So, you're, so, you're, so, so yeah. true. Yeah, I couldn't agree more with that. Um, so, I think it's really important. And, and again, we've had screw ups with customers with Truman's already, um, and our relationship with those customers is better than it was before we screwed up because we own it and we do whatever we need to, to make it right. And I think that's, that's a, a state of mind um, as much as it is anything else. On the other hand, what does, what does success look like for you, Alex? Is, is Truman's the end goal for you or is there more? Um, no, I mean, I think success as an individual is the sum of all parts. You know, you want to be a good person. You want to make contributions to the environment. Uh, to the world that you feel feel positive about, um, you know. For me, I've I've got a family, and I you know I want to make sure that the family is taken care of. So success, you know, is is very multifaceted. I think success with Truman specifically is is for us to change the industry. Um, you know, we have a somewhat arbitrary goal in mind, which is we want to see by the time you know, if it's ten years, fifteen years, we want to see concentrates make up at least half the market. Which, you know, they always say you need to have that big, hairy, audacious goal. Yeah, we, um, hey, we had those around here. Yeah, and, and for us, you know, it's such a small part of the industry today. And that 50%, you know, we may be 5% of it. Um, and we understand that. You know, there's going to be a lot of options for cleaning for a long time. Um, but we want to see the industry shift in a direction that we feel positive about that we drove. Um, you know, I can point back to, to what we did with Haiku, which is less than a percent of the total residential ceiling fan market by units. Um, but you start to see more design innovation, more technology innovation. And it, that's cool. That's cool to say like, look, this was a sleepy industry. This was a hundred year old industry ceiling fans that was dormant and we woke it up and now customers are benefiting from it because the quality is improving. And so we feel that way about cleaning. You know, I think, if you go into a business and you have a very specific goal of we want to exit by this date or we want this valuation, um, you may make decisions that are very short term thinking. And, and I think that can be um, that can be bad for brand more than anything when you start with short term thinking. And so you got to kind of keep that long term goal in mind. And so success for me is actually shifting whether it's 50% or it's 40%, you know, we want to see a big change in the industry. Um, we want to see these companies that have been around for a hundred years follow our lead. And, and I think that, you know, when I go back to, um, what motivates me as an individual, being able to look back on your career and say, here's what we did. I think that's cool. <laughs> I, I love hearing all of what you just said, Alex, when you talk about concentrates one day, hopefully making up about 50% of the market, uh, that just makes me think of Elon Musk. You know, regardless of what people think, I know he wanted to use Tesla to help drive the electric initiative. And now we're seeing other car companies pick up the mantle. So I think that's great that your guys' big, hairy, audacious goal is 50%. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you, you really do need, um, uh, 
you, you need people from outside of industry, I think. And, and you look at that and, and there's probably no industry that's harder to disrupt than automotive mm-hmm. because of how long they've been around. And exactly. The, the amazing supply chain you have to have in place to be a car company. And we've seen their ups and downs with, with that, with just even manufacturing. And so, you know, the, there are mixed emotions, I think, about the way that business runs or has been set up. But I think at the end of the day, their goal was to change the industry. And that's what resonates with people. You know, you buying a Tesla, you're you're probably doing a very small thing as an individual for the environment. But I think what you're really buying into is this concept that, you know, we can change entire industries. You know, you're sort of voting for what they're doing. And I think we see some of that same um, recognition with Truman's. You know, it's very easy to just keep doing what you're doing. I think people want to feel like they're part of something. And that's a lot of what branding is, right? You're, you're part of this now because you're associating yourself with that brand. And so, yeah, I think, um, you know, the, these startups that come from outside of industry are a net positive. And that's why I love what you guys are doing because people need to be encouraged to, um, to, to, to push for change. And there's so much complacency in bigger businesses that, a lot of times it just has to come from the outside. As we wrap up before grabbing some coffee, what is some advice you would love to have told yourself a few years ago or maybe anyone now who is interested in pursuing entrepreneurship? Well, I'll, I'll do my best, but I'll say this. I'm, I'm a first-time entrepreneur, and so I'm, I'm probably like 75% full of shit. And what I come back with in a year will probably be totally different advice because you know you're always learning, and I think that's part of it. So you know, to, to, to get right into it, that's part of the advice is never stop learning. You don't know it all. I don't know it all. You know, we're always, we're all trying to figure things out as we go. So never assume that somebody's made it or figured it out because no matter how experienced you have, there's no point at which you make it and business becomes coin operated. You know, business is messy. It's complicated. There are a lot of things that can make or break, um, companies and, and, and um, ultimately determine whether you're successful or or not successful. And so just be very open-minded to opportunities. Um, Understand that failure is part of it. I mean, nobody gets to where they are without having a lot of um, obstacles, um, you know, a lot of opportunities to stumble. And so you can't get discouraged by that. But if you have the right mindset, this open-mindedness, flexibility, adaptability, you know, those are key qualities that are going to make you successful. It's when you get fixated on there's one way of doing things or, you know, I need this experience and then I can can go do it and be successful. It, it's, it's just not reality. And I think, you know, I got that crash course at Big Ass Fans that, okay, you can do things without experience and you can be successful, um, you know, following failure. So, my 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 biggest piece of advice is is definitely be open to just constantly learning. You know, be a sponge. Um, study as much as you can. Talk to people. Get out there. Um, the the worst thing you can do is just uh, you know treat business like it's business school and it's textbook because it's not. Man, Alex, thanks so much for being with us today and making Kentucky a better place to not only live but work. All right, well, that's it. We want to say thank you again so much for checking out the Kentucky Entrepreneur Hall of Fame podcast. Special thanks to Lee Rosevere for the music that you hear in the show and to Lexington's Awesome Inc. for hosting us from their space. 
Again, I'm Garrett Farbach. Make sure to check back and tune in next time. We'll see you then.